I was about seven years old. I don't remember much about this trip that my parents took from Massachusetts to Michigan. But I do remember one thing, and that is there was one particular day, all of our family, we were visiting my mom's family who lived in Michigan, and we were visiting the Kellogg factory. I don't remember much about the Kellogg. You could ask me things about that, and I really don't remember a whole lot, but I do remember this. My parents left me somewhere by myself, lost. And I remember I was stunned when I came to the realization I looked for my mother, I looked for my father, uh, my uncle Mike was with us, I looked for him, I didn't see any familiar faces, and I tell you, the horror that came across this seven-year-old boy was really astounding, the fact that I felt alone and afraid. You know, as I read this story, as we heard this beautifully read here this morning, we can talk about maybe tragedies that have happened physically in our lives, or maybe there's been something that's happened in your spiritual life, and you've asked the question, God, where are you? Really, that question and those things that go on in your life is exactly how this young servant girl by the name of Hagar must have felt. But I think in order to get the full weight of what we just read here in Genesis chapter 16, it's important to take a step back and get the full picture so we can understand the context of this particular story. If you were to go back to chapter number 12, we find that Abram is called by God and is told that a great nation will come from him. Now you have to understand Abram at this point in his life. Abram, according to Genesis chapter number 12, verse 4, is 75 years old. Well, several years later, Abram's starting to have some second thoughts about this promise that God has made to him. And so he informs God. Have you ever done that before? You kind of inform God about what you need in your life. And Abram informs God that maybe the servant that is born in his own household could substitute for one of his children. Well, we come to chapter 15, and God says, no, it's not going to be a servant. And God reaffirms the covenant with Abram. In fact, God lets Abram know that he'll have so many children that will come from him that he'll not be able to number them. It'll be innumerable as the stars in heaven. And I love what Genesis 15, 6 says about Abram's response. Genesis 15, 6 says about Abram, And he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. Now, I don't know what happened between Genesis 15, verse number 6, and what we read in Genesis 16, but somewhere in between those pages, Abram once again begins to falter in his faith in God. Now, before we fault Abram, I think all of us have been there. We've had God communicate to us and share with us some things, and we say to ourselves, God, I believe you. I'm following you this way. And then a little bit later, when we find that life isn't going as we thought, our faith begins to wane. And that's what happens in Genesis chapter number 16. So this message, though it's primarily about a woman by the name of Hagar, I want to begin talking about the failure of Abram in believing God 
and the promises that he gave him. Let me look first of all at verses 1 through 4. I want you to note first of all the failure of Abram. The failure of Abram. Now, I want to give you something really important before I really talk about this failure of Abram. And that is, what I really love about the Bible, and there's a lot of things I love about the Scriptures, but I find comfort that in reading the Scriptures, that God does not gloss over the failures of His people. In other words, God places all of those things in there that you and I might find encouragement that we're not the only ones who fail. There's plenty of other people who have failed before God. In fact, Romans chapter 15, verse 4, For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we, through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. And so therefore, when I read about this failure of Abram, it gives me hope and it gives me encouragement that there are other people who also have failed. Now, what was the problem with Abram? Well, we read at the end of this chapter that here he is at 86 years old. That means that 11 years have passed since the promise was initially given to Abram. And I can almost imagine, I don't know about you, but when I read the Scriptures, I like to just kind of put a little imagination to what's going on. Imagine with me for just a moment, Abram and Sarai have a gotten to their bed, and they're just talking before they go off to sleep. And Sarah probably says something to Abram like this, Abram, I know what God's promised you, but look, it's been 11 years. I've taken 100 pregnancy tests, and all of them have failed. They've been negative. You know, I'll never get pregnant. I mean, come on, I'm 77 years old, and I think it's well nigh impossible for me to get pregnant. So Abram responds, Sarah, I know what you're thinking, but somehow I think God's going to come through. And then I want you to notice the piece of the conversation that we're actually privy to. Because now Sarah says here, look here in verse number 2, Sarah said unto Abram, Behold now, the Lord hath restrained me. That's a big word. That's a very important word. The word restrain is so strong, it literally means to hinder, or in this case with Sarah, it is to actually shut up the womb. In other words, here's what she's saying in this idea that God's restrained me. I know that God has power over the womb and can cause people to be pregnant, but it's not happening with me. You ever had God speak to you about something and then you begin to doubt Him? That was Sarah. Sarah knew God was in control, but she began to doubt God. And think about how this would make Sarah feel and the pain that would cause in her bosom. She wasn't helping Abram in any way fulfilling what God had promised to him. There was the issue of 11 years praying and not seeing prayers answered. There was the aspect of being a childless mother who longed to hold a little baby in her arms. There was this aspect of the pain of living in a society where having children was everything to a mother. 
It was almost shameful to not be able to have children. And yet the pain can all be summarized in this aspect, and that is that now Sarah is blaming God for the problems that are before her. And with all of that, Sarah now makes a suggestion to Abram. Abram, why don't you go in unto my maid and possibly she will bear a child for me? Abram, it's possible that maybe God intended for you to be a father, but maybe I'm not to be the mother. Now, if you look around in society at the days that the patriarchs lived, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, while this may have been something acceptable in the general society, it was not acceptable with God. And while Sarah believed that God had power over the womb, in other words, to restrain, she didn't believe that he had power to cause her to become pregnant. And so what does Sarah do? She makes this suggestion to Abram, introducing a well-known philosophy that all of us have probably heard. You may have heard this philosophy, and you may think, well, it's probably somewhere in the Bible, but I'm here to tell you it's not. What is that philosophy? It goes like this. God helps those who help themselves. Find a chapter and verse for me on that. God, can I say this? God doesn't need you to help Him. God knows exactly what He's doing. God has a plan all figured out. And God's not looking for people to say, you know, I could use an extra hand over here. Or would you help me think through this? No, 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 God's not looking for that. All God is looking for you is to follow Him and His will. But instead of doing that, Sarah says... I don't see where God's will is in all this. I don't see how God can do anything. And Abram, I want you to go ahead and go in under the maid and maybe she'll bear a child for me. And what does Abram do? The Bible says he hearkens to her. He listens to her. And he goes under Hagar and she becomes pregnant. Now, I want you to note here that really there are two glaring failures of Abram. First of all, the first failure is this, and that is he does not consider God. Now, may I say as you read this passage, while a wife may give godly counsel and can have spiritual insight into things, it is always imperative to be sure that that wisdom comes from God and not just another human being. I know as we read this passage of Scripture, and as it alludes here, that as Sarah gives this suggestion to Abram, they've been ten years in the land. So Abram, come on. I mean, I've, I've moved along in age here. I mean, it's impossible for me to get pregnant. And So why don't we go ahead and do this here? And note here the word pray that Sarah says to him, I pray thee that thou would do this. Go in unto my maid. The word pray, it is a strong word which means to entreat. It implies here that the end justifies the means. I want you to do this because of the results that we can get from this. 
So the first failure of Abram is this. He doesn't even consider God. But the second failure is also that he accepts the world's way of doing things. You see, what Sarah suggests here is practice. It's common in the culture of the day. However, just because everybody is doing it, just because the culture says it's okay, does not make it right. You see, the standard for your life, listen to this. Grab this as a Christian. The standard for you ought not to be, is it socially acceptable? The standard for your life ought to be this, is that God's will for me? So this first point in these first four verses here, what sets the stage for Hagar and what she finds is this, is the failure of Abram. And now it brings us to the crux of the story. Notice number two from verses four to six, the fleeing of Hagar. Now, Hagar's brought into this foolish and unwise decision by Abram and Sarah. And I want you to notice and observe in verse number 3 at the end, the word wife. It's interesting here where it says, And give, gave her to her husband, Abram, to be his wife. The word wife here to describe Hagar is used to describe an inferior though not degrading relationship, and this was done in countries where polygamy prevailed. In the case, maybe, of, like Hagar, being a female servant, they're the personal property of the husband's first and primary wife. So this Hagar was of the property of Sarah, if you will, but yet she could be, she was purchased, but yet she could be given as a secondary wife. All of us today living in this society don't seem to understand and, and, and put this all in perspective. And though, again, it may have been accepted in Abram's day, it's not accepted as far as God is concerned. But here's a spontaneous offer, and Abram follows through listening to his wife. But take a look at what happens in these verses, 4 to 6, when Hagar gets pregnant. Her mistress, now that describes Sarah, was despised in Hagar's eyes. And I want you to think here, when this this woman, Sarah, is being despised by Hagar, there are two things that are happening on both sides. Number one, with Hagar getting pregnant right away, what do you think Sarah's thinking to herself? Huh, problem was me all along. I couldn't get pregnant. I thought it was Abram, but no, it wasn't him. It was me, because now he goes into Hagar, and she gets pregnant right away. So now Sarah begins to think, and so she interprets here in her mind that this, this maid, this servant, is looking at her in a very wicked way. But the second thing that's happening is that now that Hagar got pregnant, she begins to develop an attitude of pride in thinking that she's better than Sarah. The word despise carries with it an idea of trifling something or thinking of someone or something as unimportant. And Sarah, or, or Hagar that is, she might think to herself, well now I'm raised above any of the other slaves in the household and now she thinks I'm a rival to Sarah. I'll tell you what, Sarah is not going to tolerate this. You ever heard the statement? I know it doesn't quite apply here, but 
can't have two cooks in the same kitchen. It's a little hard, isn't it? Well, it's hard here having two wives in the same house. And so Sarah's not going to tolerate this. So she tells Abram that the wrong that was done, Abram, it's on you. It's your fault. Men? No, I better not go there. Better not ask. In other words, here's what Sarah's saying. I have been treated poorly by this servant girl, and I'm going to make you pay for this. She's putting the blame on him. You know, it's quite incredible that years later, Solomon writes about this in Proverbs chapter 30. He says, for three things the earth is disquieted, and for four which it cannot bear. That is, there's some things that happen in this life that just cause us to be still and quiet. One of those is an handmaid that becomes heir to her mistress. Solomon possibly was thinking about this scenario back in Genesis 16. Well, now that Sarah comes to Abram and says, Look, the wrong be upon you, Abram has a choice to make. He's in a bad spot. So he does what every husband does to get himself out of hot water. And he appeases his wife. He tells Sarah to do what she would like to do with the handmaid. Now, Abram had the authority given to him by God within his household to settle the strife between these two ladies. But instead, he tells Sarah, you settle it, you deal with it as you see fit. So the Bible tells us that Sarah dealt hardly with Hagar. The words dealt hardly with her means to bow down, if you will, or to afflict. In reading into this definition, here's what we find about Sarah. Sarah put Hagar back in her place and made sure she understood that she was only a servant girl and will never be more than a servant girl. This was so bad. She was dealt with so bitterly, so hardly, that Hagar flees and gets out of there. And so that brings us to our third point now, is the finding of God. Verses 7 through 12. Notice here the beauty of the first words of verse number 7. Here it is, verse number 6. Hagar flees from her problem, the face of Sarah. And now, verse number 7, the angel of the Lord found her. I think there's a few important things to note about God finding Hagar. First of all, God knew where Hagar went. He knew where she was. And I love this here. When you read the scripture, the angel of the Lord found her. And in verse number 8, he says her name, Hagar. Now go back through the first several verses. Do you realize you don't read about Abram or Sarah mentioning her by name? She's the maid. She's a slave. She's a servant girl. She's almost a nameless person to them. But to God, the creator of the universe, he knows her by name. 
May I say to you that when you're going through your problem in this life and you think everybody's glossed over you and doesn't know who you are, doesn't know what you're going through, God knows you, knows your name, and knows exactly where you are. And he says to her, Hagar, and he calls her the maid. He does use here Sarah's maid. Now, he doesn't mention it to degrade her. He mentions her of Sarah's maid because he wants her to know, I know what's going on in this situation. You see, the angel of the Lord doesn't have to come to Hagar and say, okay, let me sit down, let me get my pad of paper, and let me write down, tell me everything that's going on. No, no. This angel knew exactly where Sarah or Hagar had been, where she was going, and everything that was going on in her life. Powerful. But I want you to note something else here about this angel of the Lord finding her. Look at verse number 11. When the angel of the Lord tells her that she'll be with child and bear a son and call his name Ishmael, the name Ishmael means because the Lord hath heard thy affliction. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us if Hagar actually prayed about her affliction. It doesn't tell us whether she complained and mourned over the problems that she was facing. And if she did pray, and if she did mourn over those things, there is no doubt that God would have heard every cry that had come from her heart. But God doesn't say that He hears the prayer or the mourning. God hears the affliction. God knows the issues that you're facing. God knows the struggles that are in your heart. God hears exactly what is going on in your life, and He comes to the rescue. But who comes? It's here, the Bible says, an angel of the Lord. Now, I'm not going to take a lot of time in regards to this, but I believe that this particular passage of Scripture is what we call in theological terms a Christophany. Two different words which have the idea of this, that is, an appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, a Christophany is a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. Now, we go to the New Testament and we see the Lord Jesus coming in human flesh, but anything prior to that in the Old Testament here would be a Christophany. You say, well, preacher, how do you know this is a Christophany? How do you know it was Jesus himself, Jesus being very God? Well, we first of all find this here that that Hagar responds to this angel and recognizes this angel in such a way that it has to be God. And this angel gives instruction and gives certain things to Hagar that only God can give. So I believe this was a Christophany. But he comes here, this angel of the Lord, with a purpose, and he asks two questions. I love this. Look at me, if you will, at this passage of Scripture here, when he asks these questions. He says here, uh, uh, in verse number, I've lost my place for just a moment, hold on. Okay, verse number 8, he said, Hagar, Sarah's maid, notice the first question, whence camest thou? 
Second question, whither wilt thou go? Now, let's get something straight for just a moment. Whenever God asks a question, it's not that God doesn't know the answer. God knows the answer. He wants to see how Hagar is going to respond in this situation. And the two questions that are given in verse number 8 are very particular because we could rephrase it this way. Hagar, tell me what's going on in your life and tell me what are you trying to do to remedy the situation. You know, I'm going to tell you something. Every situation that you go through in this life, you better ask yourself this question. What really is going on? And secondly, what am I trying to do to fix it? And I'll tell you, you and I really can't fix the problems. These two questions forced Hagar to acknowledge, if you will, the wrong in her life and admit that her way of fixing the problem by running, by fleeing was not really the best. So I love this. God gives a plan to Hagar. First of all, he gives her instruction. Notice this. This angel tells Hagar to go back to Sarah and submit herself to Sarah. Hold on just a second. You mean that she's to go back to that abusive household? You mean she's to go back to that awful situation? Yes. Because for Hagar, this was an act of repentance because God was promising, if you go back to that situation, I am telling you to go back there because I will protect you. It's interesting the word that is used here in this passage of Scripture, in verse number 9, notice, return to thy mistress and, notice the next word, submit. Now, wow, in this day and age, we sure don't like that word. That's a big word. We shy away from using it. But I'm telling you something, when it comes to the situations in your life that you want to get out from under and you want to do your own thing, God often says, get back under that, submit yourself under that problem because I'm using that to help you. In just a few weeks, we'll begin on our Sunday nights a study on the book of 1 Peter. And if you look at 1 Peter, it's really a theme could be given to it. It is submission to authority in times of trial. And Peter's writing to a group of Christians who were suffering. Some of them were servants themselves, and so therefore, here's what God's telling them. You need to submit to the masters, even though they're harsh. He's writing to some wives who had disobedient husbands against God, and yet here it is that Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is telling these wives, submit to your husbands. He's telling all of us as citizens to submit to an unjust government, and you can read through that 1 Peter chapter 2 passage, submit, submit, submit. And ultimately, to all of us, it summarizes this way in 1 Peter 5, verses 6 through 7. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you in due time, 
casting all your care upon Him, for He careth for you. You know what your number one need is when you face a trial? It's not to flee, it is to submit. It is to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God because God is in control of all of your circumstances. God cares for you. Please don't doubt His love. There's things that you and I can learn through these trials. But I'm here to remind you that some people never ever grow in the Lord because they have a habit of turning from the difficult circumstances and they flee from them and never learn. There's some in here today who recall when you were a teenager and didn't submit unto your parents and you went ahead and ran and rebelled against your parents. There are certain things you needed to learn under your mom and dad. There are some who get a job and have problems with the people they work with or the employer, and so they quit. It might be that God uses the circumstances in that employment to help finish the job of what He's doing in your life. There are some who come and seek a counselor, but they don't like what the counselor tells them, so they quit the counseling and they look for another counselor who agrees with them and their assessment. There are some who join a church but can't get along with the people in the church. Or they find a problem in the church and they go to another church and guess what they find at the other church? There's somehow some problems, but they blame the church. I'm going to tell you something. It's important when you find the struggles in life that you submit under the mighty hand of God. Humble yourself. Because it is those circumstances that God is using to bring you to the place He needs to bring you to. So number one, this angel of the Lord gives instruction to Hagar. That is, you're to go back and submit to Sarah. But He also gives her inspiration. There's encouragement that's given. God not only implied, if you go back there, I'll give you protection But God gives some information here that provides an extra blessing to Hagar. And the blessing is this. That unborn son here that you're carrying will be a father of an innumerable group of people. And God gives the name of Ishmael. And he says here, you give that name Ishmael because I have heard the affliction. And when you read these verses, as again was so beautifully read... There is something given of the description of this child. The description that's aptly given describes the Arab people today. But what we may look on one side as something very negative that has been ongoing for thousands of years here amongst the Arab people, this was also given as a promise to Hagar. In other words, Hagar... I know you've left your safety and comfort. I know you've left the problem, and now you're in the wilderness, and you think you may die, and that child that you're carrying may die, as it happens with many other people. But I'm here to tell you, that child that you're carrying will be born. And that child, there'll be thousands of descendants come And that is an encouragement and a blessing to Hagar that God thinks of her. 
Now let's notice here the finding of Hagar in verse number 13. What does Hagar find? This little servant girl, this young lady, probably in her teens, possibly, is so impressed that God knew her and saw her affliction that she actually comes through and gives a name to God. It's the name in the Hebrew, El Roy, R-O-I. The word El is a common name for God. In the beginning, God, El. But throughout Scripture, we find there are many compound names given. And this is one of those compound names that is given. It is the God, El, who Roy sees me. God saw her. And she was so impressed that she said, You're the God who sees me. You're the God who sees my affliction. You're the God who knows the trouble that I face. You are the God who sees me. What a revelation she had. And it is such a revelation that not only does Hagar give this name to God, but everybody around there finds that well where Hagar is at, and they give a name to it. It is the name Beer Leheroi, which means the well of him that seeth me. Wow. What an experience Hagar had. Can I ask you a question? Have you ever had an experience like that? Where you found that God's done something for you, where God has shown something to you, and you stop for a moment and say, wait a minute, i got to mark this down. You know, sadly, most of us live our life such on the go that we don't take time to reflect, meditate, and to ponder what God does in our life. I want to encourage you, each and every day to take a few moments and think about what God's doing in your life. You see, the interesting aspect of this story is not just the fact that God found her. That is, if we stop right there, that would be amazing. But it is a fact that God found Hagar, and Hagar was so moved that she found something about God. Because that's what God's trying to do. God's trying to transform your life. God's trying to enter in and do something to cause you to become more like Him. And I love that what Hagar found, so many other people in Scripture found. There's so many other people in Scripture that noted God's watchful care. You remember here, just a little bit later, it is Abram's uh, grandson by the name of Jacob. Jacob had run away because he had problems within his family, and he's there with his uncle Laban. Now, you have to understand about something about Jacob. Jacob was a deceiver and a liar, but he ended up in his uncle's house, who was a great match in lying and deceiving. Jacob had been so moved and so bothered by everything that after many years of being there, he finally gathers things up together And he says to Laban's sons, his cousins, you have known and you have seen what Laban has done to me. And God 
has also noted it. I think in Exodus chapter number 2, where the Bible records for us, where, the, where it says here that as the Israelites were in Egypt and they cried out unto God, the Bible says that God saw their affliction. God sees you and knows every aspect of what's going on in your life. God's not some grandfather rocking in his rocking chair and taking naps throughout the day. The Bible says about God that he doesn't slumber, he doesn't sleep. He knows everything that's happening. And so therefore, how Hagar was impacted. And I love this as we conclude this message. Hagar comes to a place where she responded correctly in her distress. She submitted to where God wanted her to be. And she named her son, noting that she accepted what God was doing. And that was, God knows me intimately. Ishmael. Imagine every time she'd call his son's name, Ishmael. It'd be a reminder, God knows me. God knows me. Well, it's going in to be in the times of suffering... When you and I face those times of suffering ourselves, it is those times that we get to know God intimately. It's in those deep valleys where the living God will meet with you. I know it's very easy that when you're facing the struggle in your life, it's very easy to cast that off and to say, I'm fleeing out of here. I'm getting away from the trouble. But my friend, I want to tell you, submit yourself under the mighty hand of God. Because it is very possibly in that testing, in that trial, in that suffering, that God uses it to cause you to be a better Christian. To be someone who can be used intimately by God. The Apostle Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, he talks about knowing God. Now who here doesn't want to know God? I mean, if I said to you, hey, I've got a formula for you to know God, everybody would say, yeah, sign me up. But here's what Paul says, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings. A preacher, cross my name off of that, would you please? I'm not into suffering. I'm not into all these problems. But my friend, I want to tell you, God has in such a way that hopefully we come through life and we can say, as Romans 8.28 tells us, we know that all things work together. If we chose our life, we would choose that all the harsh people in our lives would be cast aside. If we patterned our life, we would say, well, I'm going to choose the easy places to walk. My friend, it's not just the mountaintops where you see the sunshine and the beauty and you can see everything for miles, but sometimes God brings us through the valleys. The road that you travel on is not always paved. Sometimes there's a lot of potholes, ditches that you've got to get through. Whatever it is in this life, like Hagar... Hagar 
She may not have ever been known if it wasn't for this situation. But yet God shows me something. That every person in this room, no matter who you are, God knows you. He knows your name. He knows what you're going through right now. He knows it better than you know it. And He's there to help you. Trust Him. Don't bow out. Don't quit. Don't give in. Follow God with all your life. Father, thank You for today. Thank You for the blessing of being able to come together. And I pray that, Lord, You would indeed guide us in this invitation time, that You'd help us. Right now, while heads are bowed and eyes are closed, please, I would like to ask every person to just be still for just a moment. Could I ask this here of you? First of all, to those of you that know that you're a born-again Christian, you say, Preacher, I know my destiny. I know where I'm going someday. I've trusted Jesus as my Savior. Wonderful. But right now, you don't like the journey. Right now, the journey's been hard for you. It's been arduous, problematic, full of trials. And you're ready to cash in and quit on God. I want to encourage you like this little servant girl, Hagar, who God found her. God told her to get back to the situation and submit, and she did. And what a blessing came that she had a child, and there were many descendants that came forth. God made a promise, and He fulfilled His promise to her. Christian today, maybe you're suffering, going through something. It's possible that you're here today and you say, Preacher, I, I just I, I, I need the strength to go on and I need to meet with God. I need God to find me and I need to find God. And maybe that describes you here today. Just while heads are bowed and eyes are closed, I'd like to just pray for you. And by uplifted hand, you say, Preacher, pray for me. I'm going through something right now. And this really helped me, this passage of Scripture. Would you just slip your hand up right now just for a moment? God bless you. God bless you. Anyone else here today? Preacher, God has touched my heart about a matter. I'm going through something. And I need help today. Oh, may the Lord help us.